0: We're in this series right now called Faces as we journey through the Gospel of John. And one of the things that we're trying to remind you of is how the faces that you meet on a day-in, day-out basis, you have an opportunity to reach out to them. You have an opportunity to, in big or small ways, be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to those people. There are individuals that you pass every day of your life. They may be the cashier at the grocery store, the person that's waiting on you at the restaurant, the individual sitting next to you at the Little League baseball game, the person working next to you in the cubicle. That you have an opportunity, if you look, to just reach out and be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And we see in Jesus' life that he was often doing just that. As he encountered various people along the way, he would reach out to them. He would minister to them. He would try to meet them at their point of need. We're going to be in John chapter 5 today. John chapter 5. I've never been a fan of waiting. How many of you despise waiting as much as I do? I'm just not a big fan of waiting. Did you realize that the average person spends about 45 to 60 minutes a day just waiting, waiting at the red light, waiting in line to check out, waiting for the doctor, 45 to 60 minutes a day just waiting. That means in the average lifetime, a person will spend about two and a half to five years of their life just waiting, doing nothing else but waiting. Today, we are going to look at a man who had spent his entire life just waiting, waiting for someone to care, waiting for God to show up, waiting for healing to come to his body. Chapter 5 and verse 1 reads this way, after a Jewish festival took place, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew which has five colonnades. And within these lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the movement of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. And then the first one who got in after the waters were stirred, stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Now, Jesus is in the holy city of Jerusalem. It's a holiday. A lot of people are there in Jerusalem. There is a pool over by the Sheep Gate called Bethesda, which literally translates as House of Mercy. And when Jesus and the disciples get to the pool of Bethesda, it is a sad, sad scene. Sitting around this pool were the forgotten of society, the sick, the lame, the paralyzed, individuals who often had been cast out of their homes because of their sickness, sometimes people that had been brought to this pool as children. These were the fringe of society. These were the hopeless This was where the discarded lived, and Jesus comes to this pool. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that Jesus ministered to all sorts of people. As we've gone through this series thus far, we saw Jesus ministering to a well-educated religious leader named Nicodemus. In chapter 4, we saw Jesus ministering to a promiscuous Samaritan woman who had all sorts of baggage and sin in her life. Last week, we saw Jesus ministering to a royal official who was powerful and wealthy, a man who stood in Herod's court, and Jesus ministered to him. And now today, we see Jesus ministering to the forgotten of society. Now, why did this many people gather at this pool? why is it that they stayed there well one word hope they hoped that they might find healing now if you have a uh newer translation of the scripture such as the NIV or the new american standard Uh, the ESV. I I preach out of, people often ask me, what translation are you using? I use the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I think it's a wonderful translation. If you have a newer translation of the scriptures, you'll see that there is a parentheses uh, around the section where it talks about that they were waiting for the movement of the water. Now, let me get a little bit technical here. The translations that we have, the English translations that we have, come from these ancient manuscripts. The New Testament was originally written in Greek and then they translate it into our language. There are people that spend their entire lives trying to find the most reliable, the most ancient Greek manuscripts so that we can have the most accurate english translations of scripture that we possibly can have they they normally are at seminaries and place like that they have big thick glasses and they don't see much light <laughs> you know that that's their life is kind of going over these ancient manuscripts now the king james was published in 1611 and between that time and the time that some of these newer translations were published, some more ancient manuscripts were discovered, uh, manuscripts that we think are, are more accurate. And in those more accurate ancient manuscripts, this little section was not included. And so that's why, because King James has had such an impact upon American Christianity, it's kept in the text but it's put in parentheses so that you will know that it wasn't in the most ancient uh, manuscript. So, uh, at the very least, what we have here is you have a group of people who were sick, who didn't have much hope, that believed that this pool could heal them. Now, we also know that there is not a pool that heals people, that if they were going to be healed, God was going to have to do a work on their behalf. But these individuals sat there year after year, hoping that God, that the pool, might heal them. Now, there was one man who had been sick and he had been there for 38 years. We're not exactly sure what happened to him. He may have been born ill, he may have acted foolishly and had an accident of some sort, but at any rate, he had become crippled. As we read the rest of the story, we actually, the Jesus kind of indicates that maybe he had done something that brought this crippling state upon himself. Uh, his life was not always squeaky clean. He had become one of those forgotten within the community. Have you ever been forgotten in your life? I have been. When I was six years old, my dad's a a pastor, still going at it. He's 74, still pastoring full-time. He's been pastoring for about 50 years. And so when I was six, one Sunday after church, I was playing in the Sunday school rooms. And my dad would always call me when it was time to come. And I would come down to the car. Well, one day, he never called. Finally, I decided maybe I ought to come out and look for him. So I walked out of the Sunday school room, and there was nobody left. Everybody was gone. My parents had gone home and forgotten me at church. I hoped that maybe when they got the roast beef on the table, they would notice that I wasn't there or whatever. But evidently, I'm trying to remember, I think there was one person left in the church, and they found me, and they called my parents, and they came back and got me. And so that was great. You know, when I was young, my parents moved a lot. I always found them, but they moved a lot uh, throughout my life. But, you know, it's hard to wait and, and it can feel hopeless whenever you are forgotten. Well, the Scriptures continue in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Now that's an interesting question to ask a sick man, isn't it? Do you want to get well? It's also a simple yes or no question. Now, his natural response would be an enthusiastic, yes, I want to get well. I don't want to be sick for the rest of my life. But notice the way the man responded in verse 7. He says, sir, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Now, I want you to notice several things about this man. Number one, I want you to notice that his vision had become very, very limited. He could only see one way out of his plight, and that was the pool. The only way he could be made well is if he could get to the pool first. He didn't even realize that the Son of God was standing in front of him asking him, do you want to be well? Over time... Through discouragement, his vision had become limited. Adversity has a way of squashing vision. There probably was a time in your life where there were areas where you had big vision. You thought, I can make a difference over here. You had big vision for your family. These are some of the things we're going to do together as a family. You had big vision for how you could make a difference in the school system, how you could make a difference in the neighborhood where you live, how your ministry could impact people, how God could use you to bring people to the Lord. And there was probably a time in your life where you had big vision. But what happens over the course of time is adversity moves in. And when adversity moves in, our vision tends to become smaller and smaller and smaller. And instead of seeing how God can do this and God can do this, and this may be how God provides and this may be how God directs, we start seeing in this tunnel vision, uh, God can't do this. This is the only way that it can happen. Adversity always causes vision to become smaller and smaller and smaller. It's been a horrible month to be a Longhorn fan. Any Longhorn football fans in the crowd today? Glad to see you still admit it. Good, good. It's been a rough month. I mean, four weeks ago before the season kicked off, Mac Brown said, hey, you know, we have 19 starters coming back. I think this is the year that we can be really, really good. And, man, the, the, the vision was the Longhorns are going to win the national championship, and they're going to win all their games. They're going to blow out people. They're going to have a good defense. They're going to have a strong offense. This is going to be the year that the Longhorns are back. And then they went to Provo, Utah and played BYU and gave up five hundred and fifty rushing yards. Next day they're firing the defensive coordinator. All sorts of adversity breaks out. The next week they play Ole Miss. They get rolled again. Suddenly nobody's talking about the national championship. Nobody's talking about how many games they can win. Everybody's just talking about, well, I, I sure hope that uh, Matt Brown can keep his job, or I hope Matt Brown gets lost. Uh, maybe Nick Saban can be the next coach. You know, Everything has changed. I mean, everybody's excited because the Longhorn fans are excited because they beat Kansas State. Kansas State, you know. Yay, we did it. We're back, you know. I mean, adversity has a way of limiting your vision. And so I ask you this question, uh, has adversity killed your vision? Have you gotten to the point where you don't think big for your life group, you don't think big for your ministry team, you don't think big for your family, for your life, for your calling? Have you gotten to the point where you're always thinking small because through the course of time, adversity has discouraged you and killed your vision? Secondly, I want you to notice about this man is his excuses had become abundant. His vision had become limited and his excuses had become abundant. There is what I call the law of leaky vision. If you had a vision bucket and this is your vision for what you can do and what God can do. In the bottom of that bucket, there is a hole. Vision always leaks. Whatever you're leading, realize that vision is always leaking. And so as a leader, you're always having to fill that vision bucket back up. Now, when it comes to filling back up the vision bucket, you will either replace the leaked vision with fresh vision or you replace it with excuses. Vision always leaks. And when vision begins to leak, We either replace that vision with fresh vision. Yes, indeed, we can do this. God is still active. Let's go. Or you replace it with all sorts of excuses why it can't be. Thirdly, I want you to notice that the man's enthusiasm had been drained. This man had reached a point where he was sick. He was tired. He was probably bored hopeless, forgotten, they could have come to him and said, hey, you're the new emperor of Rome. You're the most powerful, wealthy person on the planet. And he probably would have said, well, that's great. Now everybody's going to try to kill me. Hmm. Whoopee. All of his enthusiasm had been drained. Now, look at how Jesus responds in verse 8. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And instantly the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now, notice also in verse 8, how does Jesus respond? With enthusiasm. He says, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Go back to kindergarten with me. What's the punctuation mark after the word walk? Exclamation point. What does that indicate? enthusiasm, excitement. You see, Jesus, as he would talk to people, he frequently had passion and intensity and enthusiasm about him. Jesus was not some monotone guy. He had intensity about the way that he talked. He was like, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Now, the man could have said, no. Are you crazy? I've been sitting here For 38 years, where have you been? Can't you smell me? I've been here a long time. You're telling me to get up, pick up my mat, and walk? How insensitive can you be, Jesus? But he chose to obey. And the blessing was there when he obeyed. He was healed. Enjoyment happened when he obeyed. Life happened when he obeyed. One of the small lessons here within this story is that blessing, enjoyment, life happen when we obey God and we do as he says. Now, what a miracle! How do you explain this? Well, it's a miracle of God. What a miracle this man who had been sick for 38 years, is healed by our Lord. That's something to be excited about. In fact, let's just give the Lord a hand right now, okay? Everybody wake up. Let's give the Lord a hand. This guy, this sick man, was healed by our Lord. Our Lord has the power to heal. Now look at the next section. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man, who had been healed? This is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. He did it. It's his fault. I didn't pick up my mat. I, it's that guy's fault. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? How dare he heal you on the Sabbath? But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So the man gets up. He walks away, and the Pharisees, the the Jews in this section, are the religious leaders, okay? So the man probably had to go to the priest first in order to be put back into society. So they automatically throw a yellow flag Personal foul, healing on the Sabbath, number seven, 15 yards, ejection, replay, verse eight. They were all ticked off because the man got healed on Saturday. You see, there's always going to be some in Christianity who just don't Get it. There's always going to be some in Christianity who, instead of thinking that Jesus died on the cross and rose again so that we might be freed from sin to live a life in grace through the power of grace to find delight and meaning of God, there will always be some that just want to control people with rules and fear. There will always be some in Christianity who spend their entire lives running around Blowing the whistle, throwing flags, calling penalties, trying to scare people into behavior modification instead of heart transformation. They'll wear their black and white stripes. They'll look really religious. And when they retire, nobody will care. Nobody will notice. They're just the referees of Christianity. Instead of freeing people in Christ, they want to hold you in bondage. One of the most disappointing moments in my entire ministry happened the first year that I was in ministry. I was Will's age. I was 19, and I was asked to be the youth minister at my home church. And so I took all the kids to camp, and we were at camp. And after the evening service, we had devotions. And during that devotion time, the Holy Spirit just came down on our group. We had 12 kids saved that night. I mean, it was just awesome. Is one of the sweetest moments that I've ever experienced. And so uh, we were just rejoicing in the Lord, and the group was so close, and the fellowship was just so sweet. And we all went back to the dorms. And at that camp, all the boys stayed in one big dormitory together. And so the guys came back into their bunks. Lights were already out. It was past curfew. And some of my guys were a little noisy getting into bed. They were excited. They were happy. and, And instantly it was like, the, the other counselors were like, what are you guys doing? What's going on? What's happening? And they're like, we're just now getting back into the dorm. I'm like, where's your youth director? He's over there. No, seriously, where's your youth director? <laughs> That's him. So so they call me to the side. I remember they kind of like brought me back into the bathroom, and I'm like sitting there talking to these three guys, and they're like, how can you guys be late for curfew? What's going on? And I remember I said, guys, guys, calm down here. I, I want to tell you what happened. At our devotion time, we had 12 of these guys get saved. They're excited. They're, they're just really joyful about what God has done in their lives. And I never will forget them looking at me, and they kind of said, well, well, that's great. And then one of them said to me after that, but we have rules. But we have rules. That's great. It's great that they got saved, but you should have been back by curfew. And there's always going to be that aspect of Christianity. And I remember thinking, if that's ministry, is that what I is that what ministry's about? Just making sure that we follow all the rules? Or is ministry about seeing lives changed? Hearts transformed through the power of God. After this, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple complex. And he said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. And the man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Now quickly notice four things. Number one, The man evidently had a few character issues. Jesus didn't just heal perfect people. Number two, Jesus called him to leave his sin behind and live differently. He did that with this man. He also did that with the woman at the well. He called them out. Even as he was leading them to new life, he called them out of their sin and encouraged them to live differently. Number three, There are consequences to sin. Jesus says to him, quit sinning so that something worse doesn't happen to you. When it comes to sin and the thou shalt nots of the Bible, a lot of times people push against God on that and say, Don't tell me what I'm not supposed to do. But we need to realize that when God says, don't go down that road, it's because he loves you. And when you go down those sinful paths, there are consequences for our behavior. The fourth thing that I want you to notice here is that the man went away from Jesus and he ratted Jesus out. Where does he go after finding out who it is that healed him? He goes back to the Jewish leaders and he tells them, "Uh, it was Jesus who healed me on the Sabbath. That's the guy you're looking for. Sometimes when you help people, they don't say thank you. Sometimes when you help people, they're not always appreciative. Most of the time they are, but sometimes they're not. And sometimes you'll find this as you try to be a loving, gracious Christian. The people you help the most may hurt you the most. Now remember this, hurt people hurt people. When a person is hurting, they will often try to hurt other people and tear others down. And as a Christian who's trying to reach out to people in your life, Let me encourage you not to let the pain of rejection stop you from doing the right thing. Don't serve others. Don't love others because you're hoping to get the thank you. Love others and do the right thing because you want to serve God and make Him known. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. They started persecuting him. What was he doing that was so horrible? He was healing people and helping them on the Sabbath day. Oh, we got to tear that guy down. He's healing on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them. and, And note this, man, get your highlighter out here. My father is still working, and I am working also. Have you guys figured out how to highlight an iOS 7 yet? Okay. You need to highlight that one. My father is still working, and I am working also. Before that, Jews are persecuting him, trying to tear him down, and he responds, my father is still working, and I am working also. Put that on a t-shirt. That's a refrigerator magnet verse. That belongs on the back of your car. My father is still working, and I am working also. Do you realize that our God is at work? Our Father is still working. He hasn't fallen off His throne. He's not asleep. Our God is at work. He's put His tool belt on. He's working in your life. Where is God working in your life right now? Our Father's at work in your life. Our Father's at work in your marriage. Our Father's at work in your family. He's doing stuff in the lives of your children. I know sometimes you close that bedroom door at night and say, Lord, help me. He is helping you. He's doing work in their lives. He's drawing them to Himself. Our Father's at work in our community. As you walk through your streets, those houses that you passed, God's at work in those homes. As you drive to work, all those communities that you go past, God's at work in those communities. God's at work in our schools. Sometimes we, in our Christian verbiage, we say things like, well, we kicked God out of the school a long time ago. Hey, you can't kick God out of anywhere. God's at work everywhere. I realize there's been legislation passed that limits uh, our ability to, our teachers' ability to say things about their Christian faith and stuff. But you know what? We got some godly teachers in this room right now who go to work every day and they are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in the classrooms. Did you know that? God is at work in the lives of these students, God's doing a work in our schools. God's doing a work in your communities. There are people in your, at that Little League baseball game that God's doing a work in their lives. When you go to the Kroger, there are people shopping around you that God is at work in their lives. God is still at work, and because of that, I must be working also. Henry Blackaby this week made the news because he, he went missing. Henry Blackaby, I believe, is 76 and it appears that he went out without his diabetic medicine, and he had a diabetic reaction and couldn't get the help that he needed. They finally found him. Uh, I haven't gotten to read the article, but I believe he now has some heart issues that they're going to have to deal with. Uh, But Henry Blackaby is a legend within the Christian community because he wrote a book a few years ago called Experiencing God. Anybody ever do the Experiencing God Bible study? It was landmark when it came out. And there was one thought that really captures experiencing God. And Blackaby was the author. Here was the thought. He said, find out where God is working and join him in that work. Find out where God is working and join him in that work. And why that was so revolutionary is because that for years in American Christianity, we had viewed it, The opposite way. We had viewed it this way. I'm at work. I'm doing things for God, and I'm going to ask God to join me in my work. I'm going to teach this class, and I'm going to ask God to come alongside me. I'm going to parent these kids, and I'm going to ask God to come alongside me. And we were kind of the stars of the show, and God was our supporting cast. And Blackaby said, no, 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 no. God's the star of the show, and you're his servant. So find out where he is working, and then you go join him in his work. When you start approaching Christianity like that, it can be revolutionary because then you start asking these questions. Where is God speaking? Where is God showing me things about my life or about my world where he's at work? Where is he shining light into darkness? Where is God working in my church? Where, Where do I see the fingers of God In my church? Where do I see the fingers of God in my community? Where is God working in the lives of of my kids? Where is He working in my marriage? Because where God is working, that's where I want to be. And when you start approaching Christianity that way, let me tell you, it's a fun ride. You see God working over here, you're like, I want to go there. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I don't want to miss it. I don't want to be the one standing on the sideline while God is healing people and doing great things, saying, well, he's doing it on the Sabbath. Can't believe it. Doesn't he know he's not supposed to heal on this day? I want to be the one that when God is doing great things in people's lives, I'm over there saying, God is working. My Father is still working, and I am working also. So in your life, where is God working? Will you join him? Will you join Him in His work and celebrate the goodness of God? God is good. God is loving. God is gracious. And our Father is still working. And because of that, we must be working also. Would you stand with me, please, as we bow our heads and we have our time of commitment. The band's going to come and lead us in worship. I'll be here at the front If there's anything that I can pray with you about, uh, it's my honor to pray with you. I encourage you to spend this time in worship, prayer. If you're an individual that likes to write or journal, maybe this time just needs to be spent with you writing out thoughts that God has been showing you throughout the sermon. Just respond to God however He leads. Father, we thank You so much that You are indeed at work and that we have the joy of joining You in Your work. Help us, Lord, not to get so consumed with ourselves that we miss you. And Father, help us not to have a vision that becomes squelched through adversity. Help us to dream big for you. Help us to see just how great you are and how magnificent you are and how you are changing people from the inside out. And Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing in my life and the life of my family and the life of this church to change our hearts and to turn our attention towards you. So help us to turn our eyes upon you and to realize just how strangely dim the cares and concerns of this world grow when we focus on you. Thank you for sending your Son, and it's because He lives that we live. It's in His name that we pray and worship. Amen.